0: Good morning, everyone. Um, I would like to start this morning by saying that I am definitely trying to do too much in this sermon. So you're going to have to keep up. This week, I came across a poet named Dominique Christina. She's a slam poet. And in one of her poems called Mothers of Murdered Sons, um, she speaks one of the most powerful laments I have ever heard. The poem is written to Mamie Till, Sabrina Fulton, and Leslie McFadden. They are the mothers of Emmett Till, Trayvon Martin, and Michael Brown. It ends with this lament, and I can't read it with her kind of power, so I'm not gonna try. If you want, you can look it up. It's posted on my Facebook page. Um, She says this. The mothers with murdered sons, their prayers don't arrive in heaven no more could be they never did. She suggests that maybe God is too busy to listen to them and she calls him an omnipresent yet absentee father. And then she says, maybe he's too busy to remember that he's not the only one with a murdered son. What about these, God? What about these? It's heartbreaking. I think the rage that we have seen in the riots of late is another kind of lament, the angry cry of the exhausted. So tired of fighting a fight that just doesn't seem winnable. So tired of trying to move a mountain that is so firmly rooted. And the rage just boils over. The deaths the riots, and for many of us, the growing awareness of our participation in a long history of racism are almost enough to make us forget that there is also a a pandemic going on. And with those two things, who can remember right now that our planet is still crying out from from the abuse we put it through? And we will all suffer from that. And if you were to take away those three enormous problems, we would still have more than enough trouble to fill our plates. and I think a lot of people wanna ask, where is God? In our text in Matthew 9, Jesus is walking around through all the towns and villages, it says. He's healing every disease that he can find and preaching a word of hope and power. The kingdom of God has come near. And then it's like he stops and takes a moment looks around him, taking stock of all the work that he's done and seeing that there is still so much to do. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Harassed and helpless. The NESB has that, that's the NIV translation, the NESB has it, Um, that they were distressed and dispirited. I think harassed is probably best for the first word, but you get a better sense of it when you know that it literally means to be skinned alive or mangled. The second word, helpless or dispirited, that word has the connotation of being thrown down. He sees the crowd, pushed around, sick, discouraged, exhausted, overwhelmed not knowing which way to go, and his heart breaks for them. Doesn't it sound like it could have been a crowd today? The harvest is still plentiful. There is still a lot of work to be done. In writing about this text, the author Debbie Thomas says that when Jesus sends out the twelve, he is asking them to go and make God credible in the midst of all the turmoil. She quotes Eddie Hillisum, who is a, she's a young Jewish girl, um, who was doing her writing in a Nazi camp, a stop on her way to the gas chambers. In that camp, Eddie resolved to make God credible, even in that space. She wrote, there must be someone to live through it all and bear witness to the fact that God lived even in these times. And Why? should I not be that witness? Even in these times, why should I not be that witness? And I think it's more than making God credible. As the body of Christ, as disciples, we are sent out to make God visible. We bear witness to the fact that God lives even in these times, that God has not forgotten the murdered sons and daughters, pandemics and the plight of, his, of God's creation. God has not forgotten the lonely, the sick, and the sorrowful. I don't normally do this, but I have three points for you today. Um, and I think there are lots of things that this text teaches us about how to make God visible in times like these, but I'm just going to talk about three. Um, first, I think we need to begin with ourselves and especially in dealing with our own racism. Um, That obviously does not happen in the text, uh, so you're just gonna have to bear with me. Um, If you think it's a stretch, stretch, you can push me on it later. The disciples are sent out to preach and to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons. The action and the preaching go together. The best way to make God's kingdom and God known is to make broken things whole again. And right now we are seeing a deep brokenness brought to light. You know, it's always been there, but it is right out in the open right now. I think white supremacy is one of the powers and principalities among us. It is a demonic force that works in our country And this moment is unveiling for a lot of white people what most people of color have known for a long time, that this country is and has, (laughs) that this country has been and still is held in its sway. Every time we think it's getting better, it just shows up in a new way. Debbie Thomas says, to make God believable here and now means deciding as grateful followers of a brown man who died at the hands of brutal law enforcement 2,000 years ago, it means deciding that we will not tolerate the demon of racism for one more minute. It has been tolerated for too long. And as an almost all-white church, I think the job of casting out that demon has to begin in us, with our own hearts and structures, even in our own church. It seems to me like white Christians have to begin with confession and repentance if we're going to begin anywhere. And we need to pray that God will root out the white supremacy that lives even in us. And for people of color, of course, that work is not confession. But to continue to sit before your God and allow God to heal the parts of you that have been wounded by the racism of this country, even of this church letting God undo the lies that you have been taught about yourself and heal the trauma that lives in your body. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here because the conversation about racism is going on everywhere. And there are tons of resources that you can look to, to listen and learn. Um, If you haven't been engaging in this conversation, please do. I'm not sure that we can evidence God in this time without doing the hard work of asking that we would be set free from all of the ways that this demon is manifest in us. The Second way that we work to make God visible in this suffering world is to step into healing wherever we can. Um, I hear something of heartbreak in Jesus' voice when he says, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. I imagine him looking into the faces of the sick and grieving people, thinking of how many he has healed and seeing how many there still were. Harvest is plentiful, he says. I used to think that line was just about getting converts. And it is about people coming to know Jesus. But it's also about the incredible need that Jesus sees around him. More than anything else, these words are about the compassion of our God. You know that in the gospel of Matthew, whenever Jesus feels compassion, it is followed by a miracle. The good news of the gospel is that God is making broken things whole again. In the face of so much wrong, it is so tempting to get overwhelmed and to be paralyzed by it. And instead, Jesus says, pray for more workers. I think it's funny that Jesus um, instructs them to pray and then without even skipping a beat he equips them all and sends them out to do the work. The narrative doesn't even pause long enough to say they, you know they knelt down together and prayed. Um, they're just instructed to pray and then they immediately become the answer to that prayer. Uh, you may find as you pray that you receive some direction for something that you can do. And it probably won't be everything. And it probably won't solve the whole problem, but it will be something. And that's all you need is one thing. And then the next thing will come. Seriously, everything is broken. Food systems, families, the dirt, the animals, the forests, schooling, the criminal justice system, how we get our clothes, access to housing, access to water. People are lonely. People are excluded. Just everything. You can preach the gospel and live it out in any area of society. The harvest is still plentiful. That means you can go in almost any direction and do some good and let it be a sign that God lives and that the kingdom is near. And You can't do everything, but you can do something and you can pray for more workers. And then third, we um, have to learn to do it all with love for everyone. And honestly, that's a bit of a drag because it's kind of more fun to be able to write some people off. Um, You know, that appeals to some broken part in me But that was the beauty of the civil rights movement, right? Of Dr. King and John Lewis's work to make protests peaceful and persistent. Not to give up on the cause and also not to give up on their love. They intended to rescue not just the oppressed, but also the oppressors. And John Lewis said all along, it was a spiritual exercise. Social justice needs to be founded on the love of God because it can so easily turn from love to hatred, from compassion to bitterness. We need to return again and again to confession that we might be humble people, and to the love of God, that our love might be as generous as God's. That call to love is demanding, and maybe you don't see it so explicitly in our passage, but if you take a look at the list of disciples, you will see that Matthew takes the time to note that Matthew is a tax collector and Simon is a zealot. And what that means is that before they were disciples, Matthew spent his life upholding the Roman Empire while Simon was trying to tear it down. To Simon, Matthew would have been the worst kind of traitor. A Jewish person upholding, supporting their own oppressors. And yet, Jesus called them both and asked them to do life together and asked them both to carry out the gospel, to preach and to heal. Unless we think that Jesus might have sorted out all their differences by then and told them which one was right, um, we can also notice that Judas was on that list with the note, the one who betrayed him. Now, I don't know if Jesus, when Jesus found out that the betrayal was coming, maybe he didn't know at this point, but he definitely knew it by the time they sat down for the Last Supper and Jesus still shared a meal with him, even the bread and wine of communion. It is super important to stand up for what you believe in. It is super important to stand on the side of the marginalized, to stand with those who suffer. But as Christians, we are still called to love everyone, even our enemies. Here's something really interesting about that list of disciples. It means that the church has never, not since Jesus picked out his first disciples, the church has never ever agreed on everything. You know, the first big fight is all over the New Testament, over whether the Gentiles, gentile believers had to be circumcised in first corinthians people are arguing about whether it's better to follow paul or apollos james is getting on people about the rich excluding the poor you know that's not to say that there aren't right answers in all of these situations but that the church has never been in a place where everyone gets along easily or everyone agrees all through history the church has kept on fighting you know if god wanted the church to agree on everything I think God could have done that. Maybe it wasn't God's will that that's how we would be. Maybe it's more important that we learn to love one another anyway. I mean, look at the Bible. God gave us four gospels to tell the same story and they don't all agree with each other. Maybe everyone agreeing all the time isn't the most important thing. And one of the things dividing the church these days is differing views around human sexuality. Um, my denomination, the RCA, is just about to split over it. And, you know, Sherman Street, we've just had our own survey about it. And when the results come out, you will probably see what you already know, that there are lots of different views in this congregation, not just two positions, but many. Can we still love one another in that? Can we still worship together? Can we still work together to make God visible in this broken world? I hope so. You know, that's a much harder question, of course, for um, the LGBTQ folks among us. Um, But it is a question we all have to ask. Here's something that... um, definitely does not make God visible in the world. The church continually splitting so that we can all hunker down with Christians who agree with us on every point. You know, John 17 tells us pretty clearly that disunity in the church obscures the love of God in the world. There are definitely times to break away but in a culture as divisive as ours, I think we need to be very, very careful about that. Our culture loves to draw lines. But Jesus was all about crossing lines in love. Jesus was always moving toward the outsider, welcoming them in, whether they were a woman, a leper, a zealot, a tax collector, or a betrayer. And even the Pharisees, you know, he got mad at them all the time but he still sat down to meals with them. This world is grieving, seething right now. And Jesus is still among the crowd, his heart broken in compassion. And Jesus still sends out disciples into the world, now you and me, to make evident that God lives, to make God's compassion clear to those who suffer to make Christ's presence visible through healing, through liberation, through relentless love, to show the world that God is indeed making all things new, that the kingdom of God is near. Please pray with me. Lord, teach us to love. Teach us to love. Teach us to even know what it means that you reach out your hand to the lowliest, to the most outcast, that you would touch the leper, that you would eat with the Pharisee, that you would forgive the soldier even as they crucified you. Lord, teach us to love. Teach us to stand up um, for those who uh, are being downtrodden. Teach us to step into a broken world with healing and help us to do it all uh, without letting bitterness lodge in our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you would just uproot the sin of racism in us. That you would work mightily in our hearts in Sherman Street, that we might um, fight this good fight. Lord, go with us in all of this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And I'll leave you with... uh, A benediction, I'm not going to do the same old one. Uh, Someone sent us a benediction this week from, uh, it was actually from the United Methodist Church, from Bishop Woody White. Anyway, I thought it would be fitting today. So hear this blessing as you go into your week. Can I hold up both my hands? And now, may the Lord torment you. May the Lord keep before you the faces of the hungry, the lonely, the rejected, and the despised. May the Lord afflict you with pain for the hurt, the wounded, the oppressed, the abused, and victims of violence. May God grace you with agony, a burning thirst for justice and righteousness. May the Lord give you courage and strength and compassion to make ours a better world, to make your community a better community, to make your church a better church. And may you do your best to make it so. And after you have done your best, may the Lord grant you peace. Amen.